Huntley uh, showed me this uh, newspaper article he found in uh, Florida last week. I have mentioned to you guys the picture that was on the front of Dobson's newsletter several months ago of uh, this pediatric surgeon going in to do surgery on a 24-week-old unborn child. And uh, that they can do that is amazing. Uh, and as, uh, and the picture's right here in front of me. You, you've got the gloved hands of the surgeon, the incision in the mother's womb. 24-week-old unborn baby. As he's going in to uh, operate on the spine of this 24-week-old unborn child, uh, this tiny, perfect little human hand reaches out and grabs his pinky finger. There's the picture right there. That actually happened a number of years ago. I've seen this picture, but I had not seen um, this picture of the little five-year-old boy, uh, Samuel. That's him. That's him here, and then that's him down here with his mom and dad. Pretty neat picture, huh? Isn't that something? See God do that. Amazing technology that can be used for the glory of God instead of slaughtering these, these little kids. Well, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord before we turn to Proverbs, all right? Father, you are the giver of life. You invented life. Uh, this world did not exist, and you spoke it into existence. That is a remarkable thought. We, we cannot even uh, begin to plumb the depths of that. It is too high for us. It is too lofty for us. But you spoke the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets into existence. Uh, those stars are fixed. They run on the orbit that you set for them. What power, uh, what majesty, what, what control. So, Lord, we are mindful of who you are when we come to pray. We want to be very careful on how we approach you and what we say to you in terms of outlining our situations and then giving advice to you on how you ought to work. Because we really don't know what the heck we're talking about. But you do. And Lord, some of us have had situations this week where we are a little puzzled and we are uh, unclear as to why circumstances are shaking out the way that they are. It doesn't quite add up. It doesn't make sense to us. I pray, Lord, that you might give us perspective tonight that uh, your ways are not our ways. You do things oftentimes in ways that we cannot understand. When we were little kids, we couldn't understand why our fathers at times would do the things they would do. Now that we are older and mature, we understand. Now, in a very limited sense, Lord, that explains to us why we can't understand you. Uh, we will never be like you. But in the interim, Lord, before we get to heaven and our perspective changes, may you enable us to trust you. Just to trust, even in the areas where we don't understand, because, Lord, we know that your character is good. We think of that passage in Psalm 119, the Lord is good and does good, even what doesn't make sense to us. At the moment, you're working good on our behalf. We can't see it, but you're working good. So help us to trust, Lord. Help us not to fight. Help us not to get resentful. Help us not to get bitter.
bitter towards you because of things that we don't understand. You've been so good to us. Those of us that have been walking with you for a while, we look back and we can see time and time again your faithfulness. We could write books about it. We, we, could, we could put it in journals and diaries and put them on our shelves. The faithfulness that you have shown to us time and time again. So, Lord, if you've been faithful in the past, you'll be faithful one more time. Encourage us tonight, Lord, as we look into your word. Um, give us perspective. Remind us of what's true. We're in a world all day. We're listening to radio. We're uh, watching TV. We're hearing... Uh, different things, watching things, seeing things over the internet. Uh, there are so many opinions out there. There are so, many, so much misinformation. What a delight it is to look into your word and get truth tonight. We thank you for that. So open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from thy law. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing through Proverbs. Uh, wisdom. If there's anything we all have in common that we need, it's wisdom. Um, we're all at different points in life here. I, I look around and, and uh, we, we see guys that are, uh, that, are, that are young and just getting started. And we see guys that are kind of midway down the trail. And other guys that um, may not last through this session this evening. <laughs> but we're sure glad you're here. And we're, we're glad you uh, had the gumption to get out tonight. You know, we all assume we've got 30 more years, don't we? But we don't know that. We have no idea what God has in store for us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 4 tonight. Tonight we're going to uh, pick up the section from verse 10 to 19. Someone was asking me before the session, are we picking up Proverbs after the Christmas break? And uh, my answer was yes, we are. We, uh, and we should be done with Proverbs by 2009, <laughs> is my projection at the pace that we're going. Maybe we'll take bigger chunks come January. We'll just see. Uh, there's so much good stuff in here. Let's just go ahead and read uh, 4, beginning with verse 10 down through 19. And once again, it's Solomon talking to a son. He had more than one son. We're not sure which son this is in particular, but he's giving instruction. Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil, and they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked, in contrast, obviously, here, the way of the wicked is like darkness. 
They do not know over what they stumble. If I could reduce this paragraph down to one phrase, uh, it, it would be avoiding trouble. Just avoiding trouble. Uh, life is full of trouble, and life is full of difficulty, and life is full of challenges. Jesus said, uh, in the world, you'll have an easy time. I love that verse. I've got it on my uh, refrigerator. Unfortunately, it's not in the Bible. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not a few, many. Many tribulations. Christian life is a hard life. Um, there's a life that's harder, and that's the life without Christ. But the Christian life is not an easy life. You're always going upstream in the Christian life. You're always like a salmon going back to where he was born. You know, up in the Northwest, you, you can see those salmon going back up those ladders, getting back to where they were, uh, to where they were birthed. And uh, that's a fight. They're not going downstream, they're going upstream. That's kind of the Christian life. It's a hard life. But once again, there's a life that's more difficult. Uh, the scriptures are very honest with us. Uh, they're very straightforward. They put the cards on the table. Uh, the Christian life is a hard life. You're going to encounter difficulty and you're going to encounter opposition. Uh, that is becoming increasingly true in this nation, just being a Christian. I was talking with Jeff on the phone last night, and he was telling me about this, uh, this bishop that he got to know uh, in Pakistan, and just the opposition that he and his family get on a daily basis. Um, their blinds are always drawn, the curtains are always drawn in their home. Um, every once in a while, he will go out for a walk after dinner with his wife but they don't do that too often because their Muslim neighbors throw rocks at them as they walk up and down the street. Can you imagine such a thing? Um, th this man is committed to Jesus Christ, loves the Word of God, has been uh, asked to move into other areas of service in different countries. He feels like the Lord wants him in Pakistan. Uh, he, he's pretty certain he'll be martyred one day. Uh, he, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't have a death wish, but it, it's, he, he's a visible Christian leader in a country where in their association of believers in the last year, they've had 12 men martyred for Christ. He just figures it's going to happen to him. But God's assigned him to his post, and he's going to be faithful. They can't kill him until his work is done. He knows that to be true. Uh, we, we live very easy lives in this country, but have you noticed, even since the election, the anti-Christian sentiment that is becoming more and more pronounced in this country? Uh, I haven't been to the... Are you talking about Michael Moore's map? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but yeah, I've heard about it. That's supposedly on Michael Moore's website, which I frequent 10 to 12 times a day, <laughs> which I've never been to, but hey, you know. He's got a map of, of the states that should uh, align with Canada to be the new United States. Yeah. And then the other states he calls Jesus land. Isn't that interesting? Well, you know what? 
I'll live in Jesus land. That's, that's, that's where I'll... Yeah, I was in California this weekend, and uh, there's some beautiful spots. We were up, I was with 300 firefighters up in the mountains, uh, not fighting a fire, thankfully, but they, uh, firefighters for Christ. It was a great outfit of guys, and we were up at uh, Hume Lake Conference Center, up in the Sierras, giant redwoods, about a foot of snow, had a great time. And uh, boy, those are godly guys. They love the Lord Jesus. And uh, you know, they've got folks like that in California. But they got a lot of them that are very antagonistic towards Christianity. Things are heating up in this nation, aren't they? You know, the lines are being drawn, and, and it has to do with Jesus Christ. And I, would, I find it very interesting that Moore would, would, would nail it the way that he did. That those that don't hold his position, he says they're living in, in Jesus' land. Well, you know, he's pretty much right. Because that's where the morality comes from. That's where the issue is based and I, I'll be honest with you, I think that's one reason Bush is so hated, is because of his uh, stand for Christianity. So, you know what? We can expect to get more and more heat in this nation. Now, I'm already lost. I have no idea how I got to all that. So let me get back to my notes here. Um, the point was... In this passage, it, it really is a father talking to a son. And, and in my mind, everything he's saying here is condensed down to, here's how you avoid trouble. Now, there's plenty of trouble. There's plenty of hardship. We're going to encounter it. It's what makes us strong. In every weight room in America is the, uh, is the motto, no pain, no gain. You know, if our lives were easy, we couldn't handle it. If our lives, if every, every area of our lives were together, if, if it was just perfect, if you could map out the way you'd like life to be and it happened to you, it'd probably be the worst thing that ever happened to you. I, I love reading some of the old Puritan preachers because of their perspectives on the providence of God, that God is in charge of all the events of our lives and the circumstances of our lives and our, our financial well-being and the condition of our health and all these things. And... and and their perspective is that if you find yourself in hard straits, it's because of the goodness of God. Now, why in the world would they say that? Well, they say it because they know the condition of our hearts. That, you see, the Bible says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And a lot of times we think it would be better if we had a little bit more money or we had a little bit more of a cushion financially. But you read some of the old Puritan guys, and they'll say, well, you know what? The reason you probably don't have that is because you can't handle it right now. And God is being so good, for, good to you in that he's withholding that because it would probably turn your heart right now. See, they had a big perspective of God. A lot of times, we get ourselves in the trouble because we forsake wisdom. There, we're going to encounter trouble just period. But a lot of times, we ask for trouble because we run contrary to the wisdom in this book. This is what Solomon is attempting to say to a son. He's attempting to coach him. He's attempting to give him some direction and some leadership. Now, what's interesting to me is in verse 10, the very first thing out of the blocks he says is this, hear my son and accept my sayings. Not every son accepts his father's sayings. Um, when you have children, they're all different, aren't they? Radically different. 
Some of them are compliant. That means they do what you want them to do. And if your firstborn is a compliant child, you think you're a pretty good father. Because you tell them what to do, you tell them to go to bed, they go to bed. Uh, you tell them to turn off the TV, they turn off the... They just do whatever you tell them to do. And doggone it, you're a really good father. And then your second one comes along. Because God has a sense of humor. And this one isn't compliant, this one is strong-willed. And you say, it's time to go to bed. And they look you square in the eye and say, no. <laughs> turn off the TV. And they start screaming and throwing a fit. And it just kind of takes you down a peg. You see, that's, that's just what kids will do. See, sometimes children accept their father's teachings. And sometimes children reject their father's teachings. Um, and there are chapters in the life of a child. You'll have chapters where a kid is compliant and everything's fine and they're easy to get along. And then they hit adolescence and they start digging in their heels. And they're trying to transition from becoming a, uh, uh, a youth to becoming an adult, but they don't quite have the moxie and they don't have the skill and they don't have the wisdom. And so they're trying to establish their turf, and suddenly a kid you've already always gotten along with, you've got tension, and you've got difficulty, and you've got hardship. It all comes down to the attitude of the child. Hear my son and accept my saying. When a child does that, when a child accepts truth, it's a great thing, and there's peace in the family. When a child rejects it, it's really tough. That's why the Apostle John said, I have no, no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. When our, when our children are following the Lord, it's the greatest thing in the world. There's peace in the home. But when they are not following the Lord, then there's conflict and there's um, dissonance and there's, uh, well, there's chaos. Uh, there's no greater pain when children don't follow the Lord. Now, we're children. A bunch of us are fathers in here, but we're also children. And we have a heavenly father. Primarily, this is instruction about a father on earth, teaching and equipping a son, getting him ready to be a man and live skillfully through life. But we are also citizens of heaven, and we have a heavenly father who is instructing us. And even though we're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, we're still children. And we have the same option as children in the home do, which is to accept his sayings or to resist or reject his sayings. When we resist and when we reject his sayings, we're going to encounter trouble because that's the wrong way to live. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. You know, the Bible is so practical. and Hebrews 12 proves it. Verse 7. Actually, we'll pick up verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Now, here's a son being addressed just as in Proverbs. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. My daughter, Rachel, when she was about uh, a year old, she started doing something. That just scared me to death. She was probably a year and a half and then closer to two. She talked very early. 
So she was probably a year and a half. And she was resisting me, this little tiny girl, very strong-willed. Very cute, but very strong-willed. And she was resisting me, and I had to discipline her a little bit. So I just took her little hand and, and gave her a couple little, just with my, you know. I mean, it was right there. I didn't have any, just a little girl. I'm just, no. And she started resisting me, and I, and she, and you know what? She started crying. <laughs> you know what she did? She, you know how they cry, and they <laughs> and they don't ever breathe? I'm watching her. I'm waiting for her to catch her breath. You know? And she just fainted right in my arms. Well, my mom was at the house. And my mom was standing there watching this. And I, I mean, I was in a state of shock. I mean, here this little girl just fainted on me. I mean, I felt like, I felt like Charles Manson. And I really hadn't been that... I just broke, I mean, I, I, you know what? I'll be honest with you, I started getting tears in my eyes. I mean, I'm sure, all right, I got to resist it. I mean, it just, it really freaked me. And my mom just walked over. She said, here. And she grabbed her, and you know what she did? She just took her, and she went, and she blew right in her face. And Richard went, and she was back. And I just looked at my mom, and I said, well, she said, you don't remember Jeff doing that? And I said, no. She said, Jeff did that all the time. And I had forgotten, but Jeff, when he was a little guy, he's four years younger. Jeff would just pass out. It was very effective. <laughs> and she said the first couple times he did it, they just freaked me out. And I talked to the doctor, and he said, "Just blow in his face; he'll come back." I think that explains a lot why Jeff is so strange today, quite frankly. <laughs> I love that phrase. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Not those whom the Lord hates, those whom he loves. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, in our day and age, there are a lot of sons whose fathers don't discipline them. That's how far gone we are. But a good father, because he loves his son will discipline his son. So too, the Lord disciplines us when we're 40 or 50 or 60 and we don't accept his sayings and we want to go our own way and we're heading into trouble. What will he do? He'll discipline you. He'll give you a couple of whacks on the rear end. He'll take you to the woodshed. Verse 8, he's going to make the point. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, all believers have gone through this, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you've never been disciplined by the Lord, you don't know the Lord. Verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? I love verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now catch this line. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I love that understatement. <laughs> yes, I'm being disciplined here, and this, this seems not to be joyful. It's very painful when God disciplines us. 
All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Now catch this. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We see this in the lives of our own children, and God works with us in the same way. Because see, he's trying, he's trying to train us, and he's trying to get our hearts to a point where we will accept what he has to say. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to fight him. It doesn't make a lot of sense to uh, keep that strong will, because you're not going to win. You're just not going to win. A lot of us in here in this room, we're, we're type A guys. We're strong-willed. We, we, we know where we're going. We know what we want to accomplish. A lot of us are results-oriented. We want to see progress. We want, and when it doesn't happen on our timetable, we get upset. And then the tendency is, we say, well, Lord, I'm doing it your way. And then we don't seem to get the results we want. We start peeling off and going other ways. And then we really get ourselves in trouble. Back to Proverbs. So see, this wisdom applies not only to those of us still raising children, but applies to those of us that are just walking with Christ to keep teachable hearts and uh, uh, spirits that, that are quick to respond and quick to obey. Uh, that, that habitual um, resisting of the Spirit of the Lord is only going to lead to more trouble. And good fathers, you know what good fathers do? Good fathers who have sons who continue to not accept their sayings, they make it more difficult for them and increase the trouble in their lives as a motivation to get them to do what's right. God does the same with us. I want you to note the involvement of the father in verse 11. Good fathers are involved. Good grandfathers are involved. Notice what he says. He says, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. Then he says, I have led you in upright paths. Um, fathers are to be out in front making a way. Uh, I, a guy named William Busey wrote a book called Boys about eight years ago. He had a great illustration in there. He said a father is, uh, hey, you see guys water skiing? See, that's your son back there water skiing, and you're the boat in his life. Uh, when you've got young sons, you're pulling them, and you're making a way, and you're empowering them. Uh, fathers are to be out front. Fathers are, is, what does that say in 11? I have directed you. And then, see, see here's, here's, how I, here's how I take this. Because he says, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. Uh, when a father directs, he's doing that with his words. Uh, when he says, I have led you, fathers do that by their example. And we talked about it. Those are the two powerful ways to teach. We teach with our words, but we teach with our lives. I have directed you, and I have led you. Um, you know what this is to me? This, uh, a, a, father, uh, a father runs interference. Uh, a, a father is the, uh, is, is the guard, the pulling guard. You know, that's leading the sweep. You know, you're, you're, you're down there, 
you know, you're down your stance, and that father takes that first step, and he's coming around that end, and he's going to take that linebacker, or if the cornerback comes up. And, and then he, he's going ahead, and he's doing downfield blocking. You see, when a father says, I've directed you, I have led you, that's what fathers and grandfathers are supposed to do. They're supposed to lead with their lives. They're supposed to lead with their examples. Man, maybe you're saying, you know, Steve, I haven't done that. Well, you're going to start doing it. You know, it's never too late to start doing this stuff. We can get all hung up and say, man, I let all those years go by and I didn't do anything. Well, that's, you know what the enemy wants to do? The enemy, and whenever we talk about this stuff, whenever Chuck talks about this stuff on Sundays, see, what happens is we all think about how we screwed up and what we didn't do. Because we've all screwed up. And we all could go back and do things differently. All of us. So what the enemy does, see, the enemy doesn't want me to be effective now. He doesn't want me to be effective in the present. So what does he do? He brings up my past. And by bringing up my past, what does he do? He screws me up. He reminds me of how bad, all the mistakes I made. And he paralyzes me in the present from being effective. What did Paul say? Paul said, forgetting what lies behind. You take it to the cross. The Lord's taken our sin, Psalm 103. He's removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. That's a long way. It's infinity. He's removed this sin from me. Those things I regret, those things I wish. There's a, where's that verse in the Old Testament? I'm just popping in my head here. I'm not even sure I know where it is. And how would you know where it is? Because I haven't told you the verse. The years which the locusts have eaten, is it in Zechariah? The years which the locusts have eaten, I will Joel, you're right, Joel. Joel 2, isn't it? 220, way to go. You get the Snickers bar at the end of the session. Joel, Joel 220, the years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, his comment on that verse, uh, you know, those people lived in an agrarian society. You'd have your harvest, and you're ready for the harvest, and you come out one night, in the morning, early, and the locusts have come, and they've stripped it. And you know, a lot of times that happened more than one year in a row. Three, four, five, six, seven years. You got all those years of loss, all those years of regret, all those years of hard work down the drain. The years which the locusts have eaten, God says, I will restore. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, you know, the Lord can give you 10 years in one year. Isn't that true? So what have you lost? Man, I lost all those years. You know what God can do? God can restore relationships. God can fix families. And God can give you a sweetness and a harmony in your life and your family you never thought was possible because he's God. If he called the stars into existence, could he not fix and repair your screw-ups and mine? Sure, yeah. He can give you 10 years in one year. He can cram it all in. That's what God does all the time. To those who are teachable, to those that are uh, open to him, to those that are willing to trust him. Good, good, uh, good linemen. Uh, good linemen make a way. Good linemen don't need credit. Good linemen don't need headlines. They just do their job. They just throw the blocks. They just go downfield. Uh, Was it Billy Neighbors he used to play for Alabama? Was he a defensive tackle? You know, I remember years ago watching a highlight film of these All-Americans, and they showed some guy. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Neighbors. 
But some guy who was an offensive tackle, I saw this like in 68, and this sucker, you know, threw a block, he knocked one guy down, and then he keeps, he, the guy just keeps going. And he must have thrown four blocks for this running back, you know, that was all American. And this guy's back there juking and doing all this stuff, but it was neighbors that threw a block, it threw another, boom, four blocks in one play. And that's what fathers are supposed to do. And look, uh, look at the next verse. See, it's sort of like this, this metaphor fits. Fathers are downfield blockers for their sons. Verse 12, when you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. You can just see this kid with the ball. He's, he's, he's out there like Barry Sanders because he's got a father throwing blocks for him and making a way. See, because he has a father who's leading. He has a grandfather who's leading. You know, we've got great opportunities in this culture, guys. Tremendous opportunities. Because the culture is collapsing. The culture is falling apart. And to see a, a man who loves Christ and a man who loves the Word of God and a man who's integrating the truth into his life, for young men, young women in your families to see this in your life, that, that's, that's incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. Uh, there's a guy named Max Lucado. He's... Uh, He's a pretty good writer. I told Max one time, I said, I'd like to read your grocery list. Because the guy has such a way with words. He just was really a craftsman. He wrote this a few years back. Today is Father's Day, a day of cologne, a day of hugs, new neckties, long-distance phone calls, and Hallmark cards. Today is my first Father's Day without a father. For 31 years, I had one. I had one of the best. But now he's gone. He's buried under an oak tree in West Texas. Even though he's gone, his presence is very near, especially today. Seems strange that he isn't here. I guess that's because he was never gone. He, he was always close by, always available, always present. His words were nothing novel. His achievements, though admirable, were nothing extraordinary. But his presence was. Like a warm fireplace in a large house, he was a source of comfort. Like a sturdy porch swing or a big branched elm in the backyard, he could always be found and leaned upon. During the turbulent years of my adolescence, Dad was one part of my life that was predictable. Girlfriends came and girlfriends went, but Dad was there. Football season turned into baseball season and turned into football season again. And dad was always there. Summer vacation, homecoming dates, algebra, first drive, uh, first car, uh, driveway basketball. They all had one thing in common, his presence. And because he was there, life went smoothly. The car always ran, the bills got paid, and the lawn stayed mowed. Because he was there, the laughter was fresh, and the future was secure. Because he was there, my growing up was what God intended growing up to be a storybook scamper through the magic and mystery of the world. Because he was there, we kids never worried about things like income tax, savings accounts, monthly bills, or mortgages. Those were the things on Daddy's desk. We had lots of family pictures without him. Not because he wasn't there, but because he was always behind the camera. He made the decisions, broke up the fights, chuckled at Archie Bunker, read the paper every night, and fixed breakfast on Sundays. He didn't do anything unusual. 
He only did what dads are supposed to do, be there. He taught me how to shave and how to pray. He helped me to memorize verses for Sunday school and taught me that wrong should be punished and that rightness has its own reward. He modeled the importance of getting up early and of staying out of debt. His life expressed the elusive balance between ambition and self-acceptance. He comes to mind often. When I smell Old Spice, I think of him. When I see a bass boat, I see his face. And occasionally, not too often, but occasionally when I hear a good joke, the kind Red Skelton used to tell, I hear him chuckle. He had a copyright chuckle that always came with a wide grin and arched eyebrows. My dad was always there if I needed him to be. Just like a warm fireplace. Maybe that's why this Father's Day is a bit chilly. Just a guy who loves the Lord, not famous, not well-known, just a guy living life. Uh, You know what Max is saying here about his dad? He's saying, verse 11, my dad directed me in the way of wisdom, and he led me in a bright path. Right? I really had a great time being with these firefighters this weekend. Because they're just salt-of-the-earth guys. I mean, I'm, I'd eat meals at different tables. I meet these different guys. Firefighters from Huntington Beach and Torrance and Bakersfield. I was raised in Bakersfield. They pay those guys extra to live in Bakersfield. If you know anything about Bakersfield, it's a joke. But just salt-of-the-earth guys. You know, guys that, uh, they're not well-known, they're not famous. But uh, life doesn't work without guys like that. Guys that are consistent, guys that are faithful, guys that, um, I was talking to one guy. I was just asking him some questions, and he works in Huntington Beach. And uh, uh, they got big waves in Huntington Beach. And they got a lot of guys that get out in the big, big waves and storms and surf. And I was asking about that. I said, you ever go out there? He said, well, I was a lifeguard before I was a... Fireman. I said, really? I said, what was your, uh, what, what's the day you remember most about being a lifeguard before you were a fireman? He said, I remember one day I, I pulled 14 people out of the surf. I said, really? Yeah, yeah. He said, I was really tired at the end of that shift. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows this guy. He's doing his job. No big deal. He's, just, he's just grateful he gets to do the job. See? See, God sees that. God watches it. I'll tell you who else sees that. Kids see it. They see it. Look at verse 13. He's trying to teach this kid how to avoid trouble. Now, hey, don't you wish you had a listen? If you had a good father, don't you wish you had to listen to him more when you were a kid? Because he was saying stuff to you. Look, look at the heart here in verse 13. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. And then he's going to give some commands here. Six commands real fast. And these are so practical. Uh, they're practical if you're 14, and they're practical if you're 44. Because you know what? We're facing stuff in here. 
We're all facing stuff. We're facing decisions. We're facing circumstances. We're facing pressures. We're, uh, we're being tested by life, and we're being tested by the Lord. Note what he says, beginning in verse 14. You're going to get six commands. Number one, do not enter the path of the wicked. Uh, do not enter the trail of the wicked. There, there is a trail away from the Lord of those who are in rebellion to God. Don't go that way. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. He's here telling his boy, do not enter. Don't even step into the path of the wicked. That's number one. Number two, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Most men are on the wrong path going the wrong direction. Most guys that you work with are on the wrong path going the wrong direction. Um, most of your son's peers are on the wrong path going the wrong direction. So what does he say to his son? Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Here's number three. Avoid it. Avoid it. Don't get near it. Here's number four. Do not pass by it. Number five, turn away from it. Number six, and pass on. See how practical this guy is? You give him step-by-step instructions. And really what he's talking about, he's talking about wrong people and wrong... Fr- Isn't it interesting that one wrong friend can undermine... 18 years of instruction. Just one bad apple. Somebody, and I can't remember who said this, uh, and I'm not going to get it exactly right because it popped into my head just a second ago, but uh, really two really important factors in your life this year are the books you read and the people you spend time with. The Scripture has a lot to say about friends. Scripture has a lot to say about choosing friends. Uh, Paul said that bad company corrupts good morals. Does that mean we don't ever interact with those who don't know Christ? Of course it doesn't mean that. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to be influencers rather than influencees. We, we are to be salt. We are to be light. Uh, we are to make a difference. doesn't mean we cut ourselves off and we go into the mountains and we never interact with uh, non-believers. That doesn't make any sense. In the world, just not of the world. Because you see, there are some folks out there that can do a lot of damage if they get a foothold in your life. Now, who's he talking to here? He's talking to his son. He's talking... Um, Your grandfather, this, this is a conversation that you can have with a grandson. You know, I keep coming back to this, guys. Uh, fathering and grandfathering is discipleship. That's what it is. Um, how many of you guys have children? Period. Just children. No matter how old they are. How many of you guys don't have children? Let me see your hands. All right, why don't you have children? I'm just kidding you. <laughs> Let me ask you two guys right here. Are you guys married? 
You're married. You plan on having children one day? Trying. Okay, you're trying. See? Your wife's pregnant. Well, then you've done real good. Hey, man, you get a B plus. You found something you're good at. Sorry. I got a friend who's 12 kids. I told him, you finally found your spiritual gift. Yeah, I don't want to get, I'm getting, I'm getting into that. I, yeah, I heard about that. Anyway, so, hey, it's great. You don't have kids yet? We're trying. I spent some time with two couples this weekend at this firefighters conference. And uh, two really sweet couples. You know what? They're not able to have kids. It breaks their heart. Boy, they sure want to have kids. And, uh, I mean, it's just grievous to them. It's a wonderful thing to be able to have children. Uh, you read about women in the scripture, and God closed up their womb. It was a very, very hard thing. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes those people adopt. Sometimes they, uh, they are able to take a child that was born into circumstances that were very painful for someone else. And in the sovereignty of God, God melds those lives together. It's a very, very precious thing. Um, there, there's nothing being greater, greater than being a father. What, what a tremendous blessing and what a tremendous responsibility that it is. Uh, isn't it interesting that, uh, that our God is called our Heavenly Father? Uh, for some of us, that's a hard thing because our fathers uh, did not lead us and they did not instruct us, but rather they uh, hurt us and they abused us. That's why God has so much to say to fathers because he wants to make a difference in our hearts and in our lives so that we can make a difference in, in our children and in their lives and in the lives of grandchildren. Uh, what Jesus really did with those 12 men, when you really look at it, what he really did was he, uh, he fathered them, didn't he? he uh, what, what does verse 11 say here? I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright path. That's what Jesus did with the disciples. You know, wherever he was always with. He was always with. He was always with. And so often in life, and see, this is our battle as men and grandfathers in this culture. There are so many things pulling us away. So as much time as possible to be with. Because as you're going through life with them, Different things happen and different things occur. And when these teachable moments show up and you're with, man, it's precious. Proverbs says, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Is there something you'd like to say to your son? Is there something you'd like to say to your grandson? But it's a little sketchy. It's a little iffy. And you're not sure they can receive it? There's something to consider. Why don't you pray and ask God to set up a situation in his time that would be the perfect time to where, where even they will bring it up and they will raise the issue and they get a receptive heart and you can talk to them. You ever had that happen? It's the greatest thing in the world. You're not getting resistance because it hasn't been manipulated 
and it hasn't been forced. It's just something God has done. It's what's called a teachable moment. We, we live... Um, i got to check this watch. <clears throat> you know, it used to be up until about uh, earlier, well, close to 100 years ago, even, even 60 years ago, that by the time a man hit 20 years old, he was married. Oftentimes, by the time he was 21 or 22, he had at least one child, maybe two children. Uh, we have a, a period of life in America called adolescence. We also call it the teenage years. Did you know that... Uh, a hundred years ago, that didn't exist. It just flat out didn't exist. But in the early 1900s, there was a group called the Committee of Twelve. The Committee of Twelve were 12 educators who worked together very quietly and uh, under the radar screen, if you will, and they devised a whole new approach to education that involved something called mandatory high school. And you say, well, hey, that's, that's a good thing. Maybe. Maybe. Because when you read about this committee of 12, what they basically did without consulting with anyone, and they were part of what we would call the intelligentsia elite of the nation at that time, what they did was they radically altered the fabric of life and basically gave birth to a whole new approach to life where in the years between 14 to 19, now follow me here, the predominant influence in a young man or woman's life shifted from the family and was replaced by the peers. You guys following that? Um, Anything wrong with education? No, nothing wrong with education. But when there was such a mandatory shift that took place, you see, at 15 or 16, uh, not, not everyone went on to school. Not everyone went on to college. Uh, you, you, you started working. You were apprenticed. Uh, there was great maturity in the lives of many young people at 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20. A lot of the cattle drives... If you read Texas history, a lot of the cattle drives that went right up Preston Road, and it was tough at some of those intersections, those four-way stops. <laughs> a lot of those cattle drives, the trail boss was some kid that was 19 years old, but he had learned responsibility. And he knew what it was to initiate. And there wasn't this prolonged adolescence period. Ah, some good things came out of the changes that were happening. But, but we live in a culture. Here's what I'm trying to say to you guys. We have a culture now where irresponsibility is encouraged for a longer period of time. Maturity and responsibility is delayed by the system that has been designed. Instead of getting out there and having to get up early and having to work and have... The influence has shifted from the father and from the mother and the family to the peer group, and to the culture. You guys see that? And it's so strong. It is so strong. 
May I suggest something to you? If you don't have MTV at your home, get it and pipe it into your kid's bedroom. <laughs> and then you can be a first-class fool. Have you ever watched MTV? It's absolute, unadulterated garbage and trash. And there, yeah, there sure are. Have you ever taken a mission trip to Haiti? You say, Lord, thank you that I don't live here. Thanks that my kids don't play in open sewers. But a lot of you have open sewers running through your living rooms and in your kids' bedrooms. There, there is a, and someone will say, oh, you're getting legalistic. Uh, yeah. You want to call it that? You're welcome to call it. I'm just saying moral filth shouldn't be in your home. I, I'm just saying uh, the, the stuff that's on there, the stuff that glorifies violence. You know, in the previous section of Proverbs, last week, it talked about violence. So much of what is on television that is focused on teenagers is all about violence. This whole thing on rap music. I call it crap music. So much of it. So much of the content. Last week, I shocked some of you guys, and you bought your CDs, and they're only five minutes long. Because <laughs> we had to edit some of those CDs. The content of some of this rap stuff is, is, is unbelievably vile. Having sex with girls that's so violent that he rips her vagina. Now, can you, can you believe that? It's common fare. The sexuality, the suggestiveness... Sexual intercourse is encouraged and glorified. Can I be honest with you guys? Some of these other nations around the world that pick up that stuff off satellite, I'll be honest with you, I can understand why some of these guys would call us the great Satan. I can understand it. If I was one of them and saw that trash, that's what I'd think. Now, there's a remnant in this nation that doesn't hold with that stuff. But do you see how we're being represented? And do you see the influence that's coming in? Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, you guys still there? All right, with that in mind, let's read verse 16 on down. Because it's talking about bad influences and it's talking about bad friends. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Does that not describe the emphasis on the youth culture in music today? Absolutely. The stuff coming, I mean, I sound like a right-wing fundamentalist. The stuff coming out of Hollywood is, is absolute, unadulterated filth and trash. And who are they after? They're after your kids. They're after your grandkids. So... So as fathers, what do we have to do? We got to step up and we got to draw some lines. And guess what response you'll get from your kids when you do that? They're going to everybody else watches it, dad. Dad, you're so strict. Yes, I am. And you know what? In 40 years, you'll be a lot stricter than I ever thought about being cuz it's going to be a lot worse when you're raising your kids. You see? Yeah, but Dad, all my friends are watching. I, I can't help it. 
I can't help it if their dads are fools. I can't help. But I'm not letting that yo-yo set the pace for this family. I've got to answer to the Lord for this family. And in their heart, and in their heart, you know what? They know you're right. In their heart. When your dad was right and you didn't like it, in your heart, didn't you know he was right? That's what drove you nuts. You knew he was right. But he loved you enough to lead you, and he loved you enough to direct you. 18 and 19 kind of sums it up, the two paths. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And and you know what that's saying? In essence, it's saying you follow the Lord and you follow the teachings here, and you know what? Your life's going to get better and better. Doesn't mean you're going to get richer and richer. Doesn't mean you're going to always, everything's going to go your way. You understand the sense of this, don't you? When you walk with the Lord, his presence and his goodness and his favor will be upon you. That's what it's saying. You walk with him, and you know what? His favor and his presence, uh, he honors those who honor. He'll go with you. His hand will be upon you when you face adversity and when you face hardship. He's with you. Because you're not resisting him. What's 2 Chronicles 16, 19? The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. In other words, you're going you're gonna to avoid trouble by walking with the Lord. The trouble that you experience is trouble that he allows to come into your life to make you a better man. That's the trouble you'll encounter. Not trouble that has come into your life because of fighting him and resisting him. Now, that's one path. Here's the second path. Verse 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Uh, They just keep groping around in the dark. They just keep screwing up. They just keep making dumb moves. See, it all all comes down to what trail we choose, and it all all comes down, it, it, it all goes back to verse 10. We accept his sayings or we resist his sayings. It's pretty clear, isn't it? So can I ask you something as we close tonight? What are the issues that are before you right now in your life? What are... Um, What are your options? What are the pressures that you're under? And um, what are the circumstances that would cause you to choose the wrong path and to go the wrong way? Can I ask you who you're listening to? Can I ask you who is influencing you? Because, you see, this doesn't get any easier as we get older, does it? You'd think by the time you'd gotten to this age, it'd be easier, but it's not. I was talking to John this afternoon, and he was telling me he'd been struggling this week in a certain area. 
I said, that's really interesting, John, because I've been struggling in the same area. He said, really? I said, yeah. But isn't it great we can talk about it? He said, yeah. But he was a little surprised I was struggling with. But I was. The struggle will never end, guys. But you know what? We've always got an option to choose the right path. And when we choose the wrong path, what do we do? You choose the wrong path, what do you do? Say, Lord, I screwed up. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I was this stupid. Does your, not, does your own stupidity not continue to amaze you? <laughs> Mine does. I am amazed at my propensity for stupidity at this age. I can't, I can't believe I did. So what do you, you say, Lord, I can't believe I did that, and you get right back with him. And he's right there with you. Because you know what? You're his son, and he's for you, and he's on your team. I needed to hear that tonight. This wasn't for you guys. This was for me. I can't afford a therapist, so I showed up here tonight. <laughs> Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you are such a great God. You know us. You've got us wired. You know stuff about us we don't even know. Yet you sent your son to die for us. Lord, you, you really do love us. It is staggering how much you love us and how much you embrace us. Yeah, Lord, we screw up and we fall short and we do dumb things at this age of life that we're kind of, we're just, we're embarrassed about, quite frankly. But Lord, you're there and your mercy endures forever. Your mercies are new every morning. Huh. What a great God. What a great father you are so we thank you tonight thank you that there's nothing in this room that can't be forgiven thank you that there's no dumb mistake that you don't understand and that you will bury in the deepest sea when we come to you in repentance and yes lord sometimes you still have to take us to the woodshed and you got to give us a couple of whacks because you gotta, you, 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 you got to drive it home. But you do it because you love us, and you do it because you're on our team. Help us to walk with wisdom. Help us to live carefully. Help us to stay close to you. Even when we don't feel close, help us to stay close by opening that Bible. And we ask these things. In the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus.